2003, Shannon and I were living in Dallas, and one evening we got in the car to go to a party, and as we got in the car, it began to rain just a little bit. By the time we left the parking lot of our apartment complex, it was raining pretty hard, and by the time we got to the end of the street, it had begun to hail, little bits of hail on the outside of our new Honda Civic that we had just purchased. We didn't turn around and go home, and the reason was because we didn't live in an apartment complex with covered parking anyway, and we figured the car was going to get beat up no matter what we did, and uh, we figured we were safer in the car than trying to make a dash for the apartment out of the car. By the time we got to the highway, the hail had grown larger, and uh, it, it was golf ball size, and then by the time we crossed the highway, it was the size of baseballs. Biggest hail I have ever seen in my life. I've never been driving around in a storm like this before, and I've never experienced it since. Uh, in fact, I looked up this past week online. This was the second worst hailstorm in the history of Dallas that they have recorded in terms of property damage. Uh, there were these huge ice balls smacking into the windshield and into the roof of the car. And to be honest, I was terrified. If you've ever been in a Honda Civic with large balls of ice falling from the heavens faster than a major league pitcher could throw them. Uh, it was terrifying. I was afraid they were going to begin to smash the windshield, come through the windshield, maybe crush the top of the car, where we'd have to get down underneath the steering wheel to hide. Uh, we managed to pull into the overhang of a gas station, even though it seemed that the whole city of Dallas was also trying to get under the same overhang. And we waited for the hail to get a little bit smaller and for the rain to start up again. And then we were able to get to our destination safely. There were people, in fact, who died in that storm trying to run from their vehicle into a house or into an apartment complex. And it was one of those moments in my life where reality set in and I realized that I'm not in control of my life. Most of us spend large chunks of our time trying to be in control, if we're honest. We make schedules, we try to balance our checking account, we eat tofu or whatever it is, hoping that we can delay the onset of aging or death, and we do all of these things to try to be in control, but then every so often something breaks into our world and reminds us that we are not reminds us that there are so many things. In fact, the list of things that you and I don't control is staggeringly long and terrifying. And you and I have these moments perhaps where we realize, you know what, I can't control other people. Maybe some sort of crisis finds its way into your marriage or into your relationship with your kids or your parents and you go, I cannot control what that person does and that's terrifying because I don't control my life. Maybe you face an unexpected expense that you didn't count on and you cannot afford and you realize no matter how much you try to balance your budget, you're not ultimately in control. Or maybe you're facing a health crisis that reminds you no matter how much you may eat well, no matter how much you may exercise, until Jesus comes back, death claims everybody. And when you face those moments, uh, you're going to respond in one of three ways. The first way that you're going to respond is panic. 
You might respond in panic. And that's the temptation that we all have when we're faced with that type of moment. Or you might respond with a sort of delusional idea of control. You go, I got this. I realize the roof is caving in and my house is falling down, but I got this. I got some duct tape and I can fix this. It's the superhero complex. You might respond in panic. You might respond in delusion or you might, God willing, respond in trust. To recognize that we are not ultimately in control, but there is one who is. And in those types of moments, we have the opportunity to trust the one who made us, who made the world, who is never absent and always in control. There are people, and this is not speculation, I know for a fact there are men and women in this room this morning who are facing a crisis that is not of your making. And you stand in a place where you're having to ask yourself the question, will I panic? Will I try to dig my way out of this on my own strength? Or will I look in faith and trust to the God who created the universe and who has saved it through the death and resurrection of his son? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14 this morning, verses 22 to 33, and we'll see the disciples of Jesus face exactly this type of crisis, literally a life or death moment for them, where they have a choice to make, whether they will panic, whether they will try to dig their way out of the situation, or whether they will trust the one who made the universe. They find themselves in exactly that type of moment, and this is going to be a moment for them to remember exactly who Jesus is and exactly what Jesus can do. But like us, they don't handle every aspect of this crisis well. They panic and they try to control the situation. And Jesus steps right into that situation with a vivid reminder of exactly who he is. That he is always present. He is always powerful. He is always worthy to be worshipped in every moment, in every crisis, in every situation, no matter what is happening. That's Matthew 14, 22 to 33 that we're going to look at this morning. So let's begin in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. First thing that they see is this. Jesus is never absent. Jesus is never absent. Now the context of this situation helps us understand a little bit more of what's going on. Uh, This is in three Gospels. This story is included in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. In all three of the Gospels, this narrative immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000. 
And you remember what happens at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is teaching a huge crowd, 5,000 men actually, plus women and children. So maybe eight to 10,000 people. They get to the end of the day and everybody's hungry and it's hot and they're in the wilderness to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And, and Jesus tells the disciples, hey, why don't you give them something to eat? And the disciples kind of search their pockets, right? They go, we don't have that much money in our whole treasury. Jesus goes, well, what do you got? Right? You remember he takes the five loaves, he takes the two fish, he begins to break them up. He divides them up and they pass them out and everybody eats until they're stuffed, right? They're loosening their robes or whatever and they are full. And there's 12 baskets left over, right? Jesus demonstrates that he has this type of power over the world around them. Everybody goes home, they're full, they're satisfied. And what happens is Jesus then says to the disciples, all right, you guys go, get in the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee and meet me at Bethsaida. Now, here's a map. I I don't know how well you can see that from where you are, but the Sea of Galilee is in the middle. The feeding of the 5,000 took place on the eastern shore. You can see the mountain line there, probably in the wilderness between the eastern shore of Galilee and where those mountains are. So they're on the east side and Jesus says to them, now I want you to get in the boat. And we know from Mark 6, he says, you go on to Bethsaida. Now it's not, not very far, right? Maybe, maybe about a mile from the eastern shore, just kind of a little uh, jaunt up to Bethsaida. Now what, what we're going to find is eventually they end up in Gennesaret because they're blown off course. Okay, so they get in this boat and they begin to head over. Jesus goes up into these mountains that are on the east of the wilderness and begins to pray by himself. They get in the boat, they start to row, and right after they start to row, all of a sudden the waves begin to move and the wind begins to blow them and it starts to rain and the skies are dark and there is a huge storm and they're in a small boat and they're just trying to row their way along. Now you find out in Mark 6, also in the parallel passage, that that Jesus actually sees them this whole time. In Mark 6, before Jesus walks on the water, it says, And seeing them straining at the oars, Jesus walked over to them on the water from where he was. Now I don't know if that was supernatural vision or if Jesus is just sitting up on a hill going, Boy, they look like they're in trouble. But he sees them this whole time, but they don't see him. Now remember what had just happened was that Jesus had demonstrated to them who he is and what kind of power he has. But at this moment, they don't see him. And they're absolutely terrified. And they've got the oars and they're trying to row to Bethsaida. But all of a sudden, the priority changes from getting to a certain spot to just now keeping the boat afloat. Probably starting to take on water. Some are bailing, some are rowing. They're afraid. It's windy. They can't see. It's dark. It was evening when they left. They expected this to be a short trip. And the night goes on and on and on. And they're terrified. If you've ever been in a vehicle that is out of control, you might have a little sense of what they felt. I'll never forget uh, when I was in college, I went on a mission trip to Mexico. And we were in a large van with about 15 people in the van. And one of the college interns was driving this van. And it was hot. And we were on a mountain road going up and down to get to this tiny village where we were going to minister. And he did not know at his age and his experience level how to keep the brakes from melting. And so all of a sudden, we're on this mountain road and the van begins to careen. There's no railing. 
and there's a huge drop on the side of this cliff. And we thought he was messing around. All of us from the back go, cut it out, cut it out, stop that. That's not funny at all. And his wife, who was sitting in the front of the car, turns around and goes, shh. And then we realized, this is not a drill. We are about to die, right? (laughs) He managed to downshift and get the van over to a bank on the side of the road, and we all survived. We're all here today. But those few seconds of being out of control were some of the scariest of our lives and of his, I'm sure. It took him half an hour to recover from that little adventure. That's how the disciples feel. This boat might turn over. They may drown in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and they're afraid. Now they struggle and they struggle until the fourth watch of the night. That is the watch of the night that ran from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., Okay, so they left in the evening, maybe around 9, 10, 11. We don't know exactly what time, but they have been on this little sea for at least four hours, maybe six, maybe seven hours, trying to row up to Bethsaida, and they can't get there, and they are just blowing all the way across. And John says they're uh, several stadia, actually, Matthew says it too, several stadia away. They may be three or four miles across. The Sea of Galilee at its widest point is maybe six to seven miles across. They're right in the middle. They cannot see. It's raining. They're afraid. And all of a sudden then it says, here comes Jesus walking to them on the water. Right now, imagine that this is, you're exhausted. You're afraid of dying. And here comes a person walking on top of the water. Understandably, we may laugh at them for saying, this is a ghost, right? Understandably, they thought they'd already died and they're seeing visions because people don't do that, right? People cannot walk on top of water. But here comes Jesus and he is walking on the water. They are terrified. They yell out, it is a ghost. And what Jesus says next is both comforting and a little bit terrifying at the same time. Jesus says to them, take courage or have heart. It is I, do not be afraid. Right now, you think that's great advice from the person who's walking on the water while we are struggling in the boat. But there's something that if you read quickly is easy to miss. Your Bible probably says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. That little phrase, it is I, that's right in the middle. In the Greek, that's a phrase, ego, eimi, I am. Jesus utters here the words that God said to Moses from the burning bush. I am that I am. Now, the disciples probably didn't pick up on all of that right then. Jesus says, take courage. I'm the one that made the sea. I'm the one that made you. I'm the word of God that spoke into existence light and darkness and rain and land and water and all of those things. And here he is walking to them on the sea. They are not alone because God in the flesh is present in the midst of their crisis. You know, there is somebody in the Old Testament who walks on the waves. You know who it is? It's God himself. Psalm 77, 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints we're not seen, right? God can walk on the waves and he doesn't even leave any footprints. He alone stretches out the heavens. 
and treads on the waves of the sea. That's Job 9.8. Jesus comes to them on the water and he says, I am the God who made you. They were not alone because you cannot be away from the presence of Jesus. You cannot escape from the presence of God. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Even if I am on the sea, even if I'm on the land, even if I sail far, far away like Jonah tried to do, even if it's dark, even if it's light, God is there. I cannot escape his presence. It does not matter what your crisis, it does not matter where you are or how alone you feel. Jesus is never absent because his spirit is always present. And so there's no time that you and I are alone. One of the times in my life when I felt most alone was actually shortly after the birth of our first child, who is now a delightful child. She's here this morning on the second row. But when she was a baby, she could be a bit of a pickle. Um, She would cry and cry and cry, kind of a colicky child. And so we would rock her to sleep at one, two, three, four in the morning. I remember one night uh, I was trying to rock her to sleep beginning at 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. she was still crying. And then I began crying. But as I would walk around with her in the middle of the night, in the dark, and nobody else was awake sometimes except me and her, and Shannon and I would take these shifts and kind of tag in, you know, like wrestlers, your turn, my turn, your turn, right? When it was my turn, sometimes I'm walking around two, three in the morning, and this thought would come into my head. I am all alone in the universe, right? Nobody is awake but me in the world. And I'd look out at these other houses near ours, Darkness everywhere. It's just me and this crying child. And I would sing to her. And in the dark, often I would get a reminder. Darkness is as light. Where God is present, you are never alone. The God who made the sea is always there, even when you feel that nobody's awake, that nobody understands, that no, nobody has experienced the crisis like you were experiencing, Jesus is never absent. He is always present. With whatever you are facing in your relationships, whatever you are facing with your health, whatever you are facing with your finances, with your career, with your schoolwork, whatever crisis you are facing that is not of your making, Jesus is right there with you never absent. And the disciples see that vividly. And yet like us, what they also forget is that Jesus is always in control, even in the midst of that crisis. He's never absent and he is always in control. Look at verses 28 to 32. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come 
And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Now, Peter reminds me of a guy I knew in high school who used to do things like say, hey, do you think I could jump over that wheelbarrow? And you'd go, no, I don't. And he'd go, I can, right? And he would run and he would jump and he would hit the wheelbarrow and he would end up in the emergency room. Always ready for a challenge, always ready to do something crazy, but not always able to think through all of the consequences to the end. That is Peter often all the way through the Gospels. He is often rash and reckless and his decisions are poorly thought out. And yet Peter loves his Jesus so much that he'll follow him to death. And so Peter looks and he says, Lord, if it is you, if you are who you say you are, tell me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus utters a one-word response. Come. The best Greek translation for this is bring it on Peter. Right? (laughs) Actually, I made that up. You're like, I got to go to seminary. (laughs) It's one word. He says, come. And so Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk toward Jesus, also on top of the water. And I've often thought, what must that have felt like to walk on top of these waves? I don't know if you've ever seen a group of uh, kids inside one of those bounce houses, you know, where the floor is moving up and down and you get like 20 kids in there and they can't stand and their weight begins to affect each other, right? It's like human popcorn, right? And it's so fun to watch until two heads go like this, right? And I imagine that's how Peter feels. He is on top of these waves and he's walking toward Jesus, right? Because Jesus can make him walk on the water because Jesus made the water. And as long as Peter looks at Jesus, he stays on top of the water. But then the next verse, it says, but seeing the wind, Peter looks around and he goes, Those are some big waves, and this is a bad storm, and what have I done? I'm out of the boat, and he begins to sink, and I imagine, I've always imagined this, that just before his head goes under the water, he goes, Lord, save me, right? Because he is literally about to be in way over his head, and Jesus, it says immediately, I love that, Immediately, Jesus reaches down and grabs him and pulls him up. I saw parallels as I looked at Matthew 14 this week with the book of Jonah, one I already mentioned. But this reminds me of Jonah chapter 2. You remember when Jonah uh, gets swallowed by the fish as he's trying to run away from God's presence. This big old fish swallows him when he's cast into the sea. And from inside the fish, Jonah writes a little poem. Right Now, I don't know where he got like a pen or papyrus or whatever, if he's scratching on the side of the fish, you know, finishes it, Jonah was here, right, or something like that. I've always imagined. But in the middle of that poem, it says, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me, but you have brought up my life from the pit. And that's what Jesus does for Peter. He reaches down and he says, 
the God of Jonah is here. And he pulls him from the water. And the next words he says to him have always been a little bit baffling to me. And I'll tell you why. He looks at him and he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I've always thought if I were Peter, I would say, there are 11 men in the boat. (laughs) Why are you getting on to me? I got out of the boat. And here's why. Because Jesus does not grade our trust in him on a curve. The issue is this, Peter. Because you were out of the boat, because you saw what I could do, because you looked me in the face and knew who I was, you should have known. You should have known that I could keep you up, that I could keep you from falling. Because I rule the sea. And then as if to prove his point, they get in the boat and the whole thing just stops. The wind, the waves, the rain. This reminds me of Luke chapter 8. Another situation when the disciples get into a boat and you remember the storm starts up again and Jesus falls asleep. And they go, Jesus, wake up, wake up, wake up. Don't you care? We're going to die. And Jesus stands up and it says he rebuked the wind and the waves. He just goes, hey, cut it out, right? And all of a sudden... The waves stop. The sea is like glass. The rain stops. You've never seen a storm stop like that. When it rained this week, what usually happens? The rain slowly stops. The wind slowly gets lighter and lighter. And then it dries out. The sun comes out and it's done. When Jesus says something, everything stops. And the wind and the waves stop. Because he is the God of the sea. Every crisis in your life and mine is an opportunity to trust that the maker of the seas is in control. It is quite possible that he will not end the crisis in our lives. And we may not know why, ever. But it is also true that the God who made us, the God who made the world, will one day resolve even the worst crisis. That because of Jesus, death itself has been undone. That the worst enemy we face was defeated when he died and rose again and claimed the victory once and for all. So that when we stand in the midst of a crisis, not of our making, not in our control, We rest in the one who has promised one day to overturn sin, to overturn death, to restore all things to a place where there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death. And in the midst of that storm, in the midst of that crisis, we lock our eyes on Jesus and trust the maker of the seas. All who trust in him will be saved. Now, at that moment, 2,000 years ago, Peter was not asking to go to heaven when he died, when he said, Lord, save me, right? In fact, he was asking something totally different, which is, I don't want to die. But that's the point that is made all the way through the Gospels, is this. Those who know Jesus need never fear death, need never fear a crisis, need never fear 
because he is there and because he is in control. And so we are able to not respond in panic. We don't respond with self-delusional, a self-delusional sense that we are in control. But we look at Jesus and lock our eyes on him. Jesus is never absent. He is always in control. And he is always worthy of worship. In verse 33, And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Now, this is where it helps to, to remember that context of the feeding of the 5,000. And the reason is because, again, they knew who he was and what he could do. They had just seen all that he did. But in this moment, God broke through again in a fresh way to remind them of who Jesus is. Jesus did not change. They changed. And if you've ever had a moment like that, you know that there are these times where God may break in and say, I just want you to remember who I am, that I am here and I am present and I care. This past week, I had really in the grand scheme of eternity, a pretty small crisis. And that is, as we've been planning for our Creekside campus, which is coming up here in August, there's obviously a number of details and a number of issues that we are working through, so we'll be ready to go. And I was waiting on one critical communication that was going to affect kind of our start timing and all of these other issues. And I had emailed somebody weeks ago, emailed again, no response, no response, no response. And I was worried and I was beginning to panic and I was frightened that things weren't going to work out. And so I'm sitting in a meeting. This is weeks after I first initiated this conversation with a group of our staff. And I said, you know, I'm feeling stress, anxiety about this email. I still haven't heard back. I need a positive answer. Would you just pray that I'll trust the Lord and also pray for a positive response? They said, sure. So we went on with the meeting and I'm sitting there and I kind of had my laptop up taking notes during this meeting and all of a sudden, bing, 30 minutes after the meeting starts, the email I'd been waiting for for three weeks pops into my inbox. We'd love to accommodate your request. Yes, whatever you need. And I looked at him. I said, okay, whoever prayed right then, Thank you. Now, it's small, right? This is, it's a small crisis, but that's part of the point here. There is no crisis so small that Jesus doesn't see it. And there is no crisis so large that he is not in control. And when the disciples see that, they fall down and worship him because they remember who he is. Here's what I want to ask Do you believe that in the midst of whatever storm you're in, Jesus is there? Do you remind yourself the words of Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? There is nowhere you can be that he is not. There is nowhere you can be that he is not. Do you believe he is with you through his spirit that is present with us even to the end of the age? Do you believe he's with you in your deepest crisis? Do you believe he is in control, that he will and is resolving all things for his glory and for our good? Do you believe he is in control? And will you worship him? Will you worship him as you recognize 
those things that are true about him, for his presence and for his power. We're going to do that this morning. We're going to worship the God who made the ocean, who created you and me, who gave his son, who took our death, who took our sin on himself and rose again and defeated them both so we can have life. We're going to sing in praise to him for his power and for his presence. By the power of your spirit that lives in us, I pray we would trust you that in the midst of whatever we face, wherever we are, we would remember that you are there, you are in control, and you care deeply. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for your son and for your spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.